We truly need God. It's why we've come to him in his word. And so this morning, before we open up the book, we'll, de- we'll express our need and dependence on him through prayer, and then we'll seek to find the Savior who alone gives life. I'll invite you to pray uh, with me as we pray together to our Savior. Lord, thank you. Uh, For you're God, you're the only autonomous being in the universe who is self-sustaining. We're not, thus we need you. We depend on you for life and breath. We depend on you for spiritual life, to be renewed and transformed and to live forever. And so we need you. And so be pleased with our confession an acknowledgement of our need for you. We come to you with need, Lord, and we ask that you would share yourself with us. Our need is expressed in opening up your word. And so see this as an act of faith where we can find the one who alone saves, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. 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 Well, uh, I'd like to begin our time together this morning by by reading to you a letter, um, a letter that a mom wrote to her daughter many years ago while she was away at college. The context of this letter is that there has been an outbreak of smallpox on the daughter's campus. The daughter is still well. She has yet to get sick. Her mom went to the local grocery store, found a card, and on the front cover, it said this. I ask not that God give you wealth, but I daily beg him for your health. And on the inside of the card, the mother wrote these words. Dear Ruth, don't misunderstand. I'm not writing to you out of distress because I think you're among the victims of the smallpox outbreak. On the contrary, I am rejoicing that you are well. Of course, I don't want you to get sick, so take the necessary precautions. But I write because my heart is full of memories and confidence. I recall how you once had measles and your face looked like a prize fighter in the 15th round. And how you got completely well. I remember also how you were so brave back when the smallpox vaccinations were still given in our little town with just a piece of broken glass. You took it without a tear and now you've got that protection in your body. You've been so strong and healthy. It seems, as I look back, that when everybody else was falling with the flu, you conquered that enemy and hardly got the sniffles. You obviously know some wonderful secret, so hold on to what you got. Take heart in the manifest work of God in your life. Keep yourself in his wonderful health. I am full of joy in the great gift of health we share. Love, Mom. The reason why I chose to start off our time together by reading to you this letter is because as we prepare to look at our text this morning, in many ways this is very similar to what the Apostle John will be seeking to do in this book and writing. John in this book is writing to the family of believers within the church whom he dearly loves and cares about during a time where false teachers were penetrating, influencing the church, and leading them astray from the one true faith. And so here, 
in our book, John, is seeking to alert this church of the danger while giving them instruction to stay true to the gospel. In other words, John is saying to the church, church, you're doing well in the faith, keep it up, but as you continue along your way and journey following Christ, be aware of the potential dangers that lurk and await to destroy your faith and soul. You know God, God knows you. You are in Christ, remain in him. And the Lord God himself will keep you. This is the message that God himself longed to bring to the church, to the apostle John, and thus by faith. I believe this is the, the message that God, through his word this morning, longs to bring to us. If you're following along, um, I've titled this sermon, God, His People, and the Word. We're going to be in the book of First John this morning, chapter 2. Bibles and cell phones here are both okay. First John chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 17. Three things I'd like to um, show you as we um, exposit or break down or study this text. The first point I'd like to show you is the gift of knowing God. The second point I'd like to make to you this morning is the temptation of the world. What does that look like or feel like or sound like? And third is the everlasting kingdom, the promise of the everlasting kingdom. We'll begin our time together by reading the text up front. Again, John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We are privileged to have the word of God before us this morning. God is very gracious for that. I'd like to move us to point number one and show you the gift of knowing God. Well, this morning, we're um, focusing in on verses 12 through 17. And as we do, it's helpful for us to keep in mind that this section of text is found in the middle of chapter 2. And also uh, pretty much in the middle of John's overall sermon here. And in fact, some scholars say that this section here that we just read, given its form of poetry, serves as a breaking point in which John is looking back at the instruction that he has already given to the church and now moving into a more detailed section of warning against the world and false teachers. I mentioned this in the intro. But as we examine his writing here, the question is, who exactly is John speaking to? Because if you look there from first glance, it seems as if he's writing to three audiences. 
In verse 12, he mentions little children. In verse 13, he mentions fathers. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, he mentions the crowd of young men. Some commentators throughout history have interpreted these three categories to refer to spiritual maturity within the family of the church. Others, which is my preferred interpretation, look at these three groups and say, although this looks like three, it's actually only two. When John here uses the phrase little children, he's actually addressing the entire church, then subdividing this category of the entire church at large into two smaller categories, one being fathers, the other being young men. Why would I take this interpretation over the first? Well, because John uses this phrase, little children, five other times in this book to address the church at large. Chapter 2, verse 1 in this section, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, 4, and 5, 21. Thus, to me, it seems logical that the term little children means every listener or reader. And with this word little here that he places before the word children, John is not so much describing their stature or age as much as he's seeking to communicate his love and affection. In other words, the word little here is a term of endearment. We have to remember that John is apostle, given to the church by Christ himself as an authority over it, a leader over it. And so here, through this term, little children, we see his relational tie, his care and concern for those in the church. His address to fathers is a reference to the older church members, perhaps particularly the, the elders who respons whose responsibility it was to lead and govern the church. And this phrase, young men here that you see, is meant to signify the next generation. Um, but you'll notice John uses a, lot, a lot, uses a lot of masculine terminology. I just want to be careful in all this masculine terminology that John uses for this, not to obscure the application to exclude women and little girls. Why? Because as I mentioned before, earlier, John is seeking to reach the entire church, the whole church, the head, heart, and hands of every believer who is in Christ. Thus, women and children apply. So now that we have understood this, I want to transition you into some of John's main theological focuses. If you look there in verse 2, you'll, you'll see that he mentions their salvation. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. In other words, this is a born-again church. John is writing to believers who have received the Spirit of God and been born again to a new and living hope. Here, he is reminding them of the gift and privilege that they get to have and enjoy as Christians, which is the fact that their sins are forgiven on the count of Jesus' name. Here, um, John is exposing the saving nature of the name of Jesus Christ. The word Jesus means rescuer or savior. And this is the dominant way that the gospel was preached in the early church. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter pre preached his first sermon and the spirit of God was poured out on all believers, he said these words, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then in the next chapter, after the lame man was healed at the temple gates, Peter said, 
It is by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and now know was made strong. Next chapter, chapter four, Peter stood before the Jewish council and he said these words, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus' name itself is the good news of the gospel. And this is the salvation which brings us into the true knowledge of the living God. Which in fact, if you look there in verse 13, is the second point that John makes here. That these fathers, or older believers in the church, would be encouraged by his affirmation of their knowledge of Christ. John says, if you look, that they know him who was from the beginning, which is a description that takes us back to the opening verse of this sermon book, chapter one, verse one, which says, that which is from the beginning. It's a reference to the truth found in John's first gospel in his prologue. In other words, Christ is the one who is from the beginning. And as John mentions this, he is underlining Jesus' pre-existence with God the Father and his deity. John is saying here that ever since these older believers in the church first responded to the gospel, that they had known and affirmed this, that Jesus is God. And it is this one foundational truth that enables him to accomplish the work of salvation. In other words, the mark of maturity for all believers, especially fathers and mothers in the faith, is that they have a deep knowledge and understanding of Christ through his saving work and identity. This alone is the power of the gospel that enables us to walk in the light of God. Why would John write these words? Because the false teachers during this time were teaching that Jesus was only a man, a mere human, that the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism and left him before his passion and that his blood was not of that of the Son of God. But John is saying to the fathers, you know better, you're old enough. They themselves were probably eyewitnesses with John himself to the life of Christ. Thus, they were in a greater way through their age and life experience in faith, able to affirm and discern truth from error. I know this might sound really weird, um, but after I get out of the shower, most days I look into the mirror, and one of the things that have been exciting me is I've been popping all these little gray hairs. I know that's weird to get excited over, gray hairs, um, but do you want to know why I get excited over gray hairs? Because the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the glory of a young man is his youth and that the glory of an old man is his gray hair, a.k.a. his wisdom. Gray hair equals wisdom. And true biblical wisdom is found in fearing the Lord. And fearing the Lord is found in believing in the gospel and living for God. And it is through believing in the gospel and living for God that by faith we get to know Christ. This is the gift and blessing 
that older believers in the church bring into the church. Knowledge of Christ through life and experience lived with him over a long period of time. The thing in which younger believers, millennials, and those underneath do not simply have because of the fact that we haven't lived as long. Um, maybe if you've been coming to our, um, our church for a period of time, you might have been noticing that our church is changing. Our church Four years ago looked a lot different than it looks today. One of the things that has been happening is that we're becoming a younger and younger church, and we praise God for that. More children, more families. But one of the things that I pray the most is that within all of this transition towards a younger generation, that we would not become a multi-generational, uh, we would not become a mono uh, uh, generational church, but rather stay and also grow into becoming a multi-generational church. Why? Because a multi-generational church fully represents the family of God. A church that is full of both young and old people, where, is, where there is the life and presence of spiritual mothers and fathers, younger families and believers. We absolutely need this. And so if you're older here and you're at this church, please hear me out. You are not only wanted, but you are needed. And you're loved, and you're just as valuable as new families who are young with children. We need you. God has purposed your presence for the health and blessing of our church. I hope that is an affirmation that charges you up to live missionally towards young families with the gospel in your hand. If you look there after John addresses this, he moves on to speak to the young men. You, you'll see that he says to the young men that they have overcome the evil one, that they are strong, and that the word of God lives in them. In other words, that they have victory over sin and Satan himself. This is a characterization of the beginning of real Christian life and discipleship. The point of salvation when one is awoken to the power of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ, the power of sin and death in an instant are broken. And from this saving work, believers get to enjoy with full confidence a glorious assurance that God does not just forgive, but he also frees his people from being held captive to the power of sin and death. And so this strength that John is referring to here in the young men is not simply a reference to the youth, but to that which is from Christ, supplied by his, by his spirit and his word. In other words, young people who believe upon Christ do not just get filled with zeal or passion because they are young, but because the word of God in step with their newfound salvation sets them on fire to live for the gospel and the kingdom mission. Isaiah chapter 40 says this. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You see, zeal and passion can only take you so far. If you live on emotion or passion alone, you will experience highs and lows that will exhaust you. 
If you're young and you have a newfound faith, your hope and source of power and confidence must come through the grace of the gospel found in Christ alone. And I don't know if you can relate to me in this, but as I think about fathers and mothers in the faith who've been doing this for 30, 40 years, I look at them and I get intimidated and I, and I think that that task seems daunting. Sometimes I could barely make it through a week following Jesus. 15 years of following him, I feel tired. How is that ever going to be possible to be 55 years old or 60 years old or 70, 80 years old and die with the gospel. I know I'm not the only one who feels this. Do you know how I could say that? Because I live in the community of this church and I see young families spending their lives on Christ. I see you opening up your home to host a community group. I see you seeking to make disciples. I see you spending your life on mission. I see you trying to love your children and teach them the gospel, actively participate in church, volunteer, sign up for Bible studies, engage in discipleship ministries. Oh, and I know how hard it could be, how wounding it could be, how heavy it could be, how at times depressing it can be to long for God and not see his spirit poured out and work tirelessly and labor endlessly and not see fruit. How are you going to make it to the end? Buy in through the unchanging gospel, which is God's grace for you given through Jesus Christ. It is the same grace that you received when you first were saved that will keep you and sustain you to finish the race. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of crops. So I don't know if you've been at our church for a while or if you're new here. But can I just stop and say that if you have been laboring for the kingdom of God, all of your labors and efforts are not in vain. Every single ounce of your striving after building the kingdom of God is worth it. Let me remind you of how and what is the only way that you will make it to the end. The gospel of Jesus Christ, God's grace for you in word and prayer. Hide God's word deep in your heart and let his word be your assured promise and your healing bomb. He who called you is faithful. He will keep you. I'm convinced that nothing matters more in the health of our church's future than the presence of God's word taught with essential focus on Christ paired with the missional people who long to make disciples and spend it all on the kingdom of God whether that be fruit seen or fruit unseen. I'm talking to the faithful. 
Is this the way you think about your faith? Is this the way you practice and experience your salvation? If you're older, does this text describe you? If you're younger, does this text describe you? If it does describe you, I praise God for you. Your life and labor is not in vain. Let me read a small portion of Psalm 119 to you, and I pray that through the reading of God's word, you will receive a healing balm as you identify with the soul longings of the author who is the man whose heart was known to love and strive after God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teaching me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in riches. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Let me not be put to shame. Let your steadfast love come to me. You are good and you do good. Let your steadfast love comfort me. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. I have more understanding than all of my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. My zeal consumes me your promise is well tried. Great is your mercy. The sum of your word is truth. I long for your salvation. Your law is my delight. This is what godly men and women pray daily. This is how godly men and women think about their life. This is who the, the people John is speaking to in this church. The faithful. And the message is, well done. You are right where you need to be. All of your sins are forgiven. You're victorious in Jesus. God has saved you. Thus he will keep you. Stay in his word. So I say as your pastor this morning, all of the same. Well done. Stay in his word. Keep your eyes fixed on the Savior. Amen. That was point number one. The gift of knowing God I'd like to show you now. Point number two. As we move on to this text, the temptation of the world. It's been uh, quite a journey to follow Jesus over 15 years. I've um, experienced some pretty beautiful and outstanding, triumphant things while following him. Um, but on the contrary, one, one of the things that most sorrows my soul that I have seen in my faith walk with Jesus is seeing people fall away from the Lord. I have um, specifically two people who come to mind right now. I won't say who they are or how I know them. These two people that I have in mind right now once had a thriving, flourishing prayer life. These two people that I have in mind right now once read the scriptures daily. These two people that I have in mind right now once made disciples, gave their life away to the church. But as I watched their lives... I saw them slowly begin to drift away from God and towards the world. And John here in this text explains exactly how and why this happened. If you look there in verse 15, he begins with this command, do not love the world. 
And uh, at first, when we see this command, it kind of seems confusing, right? I mean, we also have in mind God himself loving the world in John chapter 3.16. For God so loved the world. And so what is John saying when he says, do not love the world? Well, the world, the, the word world in the New Testament actually has three meanings. First, it can refer to creation. John chapter 1, 3, 4, 6, and 8 speak of God creating the world. Second, it could refer to the people that inhabit the world, ones who are made in God's image, and certainly this can't be the way that John is using it because we get the the greatest command from our Savior himself to love God and neighbor. And so this has to be the third meaning of the word world, which refers to a spiritual realm that is opposed to the kingdom of God. And with this word, you'll also see that John mentions the idea of love. John says, do not love the world. In other words, there is a love that is sinful. This is the Bible's response to our culture's claim that says love is love. John is saying, uh, no, it's not. There's a type of love which is wrong. And it's when one pursues and or receives pleasures and or gratification in the things that are opposed to God and his kingdom. One commentator named James Montgomery Boyce said this. The idea here is of the world of men in rebellion against God and therefore categorized by all that is in opposition to him. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. John says of this world that the world lies in the grip of the evil one, that it rejected Jesus when he came, that it does not know him, and consequently it does not know and therefore also hates his followers. It is in this sense that John speaks of the word world. And if you look there in verse 16, there's another word that he uses here, desire. In Greek, it actually means lust. If we are not careful, the world or the things of the world can stir up in us an intense desire, need for or craving of its things, which lead us into things like covetousness or sexual immorality, or what John here, if you look, calls the pride of life. The phrase the pride of life is also found in chapter 3, verse 17, within the context of property and possessions. And so what John is saying is that there is a type of pride that comes with pursuing and or having things. Listen, the gospel doesn't say that we can't have nice things. The gospel doesn't say that we can't have a nice house, a nice car, or a lot of money. The gospel doesn't say we can't wear nice clothes or enjoy nice things. However, what the gospel says is that we cannot love these things. The danger that lies in the world and the things of this world is the lurking, deceiving calling of love for us to get so captivated and consumed on these things that we fall in love and our affections long for them. We fall in love with the world in such a way that we end up loving or pursuing it more than God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. 
In Exodus chapter 20, God said, you shall have no other gods but me. In other words, this teaching is not that we just can't love things above God, but that we as Christians are to love God alone, which means we are supposed to take all of our love allegiance and give it to God alone. He does not allow any love sharing. But if you're living in the same world that I'm living in, can we just confess how hard it is not to love the world or the things of the world? John is saying, as we all in the church face this temptation, beware because this is how serious this dilemma can be. We can fall into the trap that my two friends and loved ones fell into and slowly drift away and slip into swiftly the pathway that leads to destruction. He's saying, Christians, beware. This is a gospel warning. Be aware of the world and the things in it which call for your soul. They'll kill you. They'll kill you. They'll kill you. They'll kill you. So for those of us here who are tempted to run the rat race, we have the gospel warning. Look at the world and see its affections. It longs to love our soul deceptively in order to kill us. Let me remind you, dear Christian, that Jesus is the only one who will satisfy. Let me remind you, dear Christian, that Jesus is the only one in whom there is complete and full joy. Let me remind you, dear Christian, in God's kingdom, there is a fullness of riches, and at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus alone gives unique and special identity where we can be differentiated and separate from the world. The things of the world that promise to satisfy can't. And so I ask you gently, as I ask myself in a gospel introspective way, what calls for the love of your soul? What has your heart, not intellectually, but practically, as you think about the life rhythms that you abide in? Is it money? Do you love money? Is it career or success? or pleasure, or safety, or comfort, or possessions, God's grace this morning is calling out to each of us and saying, don't be deceived. Dear Christian, you have been called out of darkness into a marvelous light. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Listen to these promises. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff. The wind drives away. These are God's promises for you. He calls you by grace. It's grace alone that you have him. By grace alone, he keeps you. And then as he keeps you, he's longing to give you all of himself. He is the treasure of heaven, which alone can satisfy the soul.
I'd like to finish now on our last and final point, which is the everlasting kingdom. And I'd like to end with a point which I think sums up the entire passage, and that one main point is this. God desires for you and I both to live now and forever. God desires that you and I would live now and forever. As we think about the weight and responsibility of this text, it's easy to see this call as daunting, to live holy for Christ and stay pure in his, wor- in, his, in his word while resisting the temptations of the world. Why? Because the world's just really good at calling for our soul and its love. You see, the fallen condition of this text here is that there is nobody here, including myself, that had, have added up to this call. No one by faith has faithfully labored sinlessly with perfect faith to please God, and nobody Nobody has resisted the temptations and urges of this world but Christ. A great picture or illustration of this is when Jesus was out alone in the desert fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he was in the desert, and Satan came up to tempt him, and while the two of them were up on a mountaintop, Satan said to him, See all those kingdoms? All of these I will give to you. If you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responded and said to him, Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And Jesus Christ did not just fulfill this perfectly in this moment, but he did so. He fulfilled this perfectly, sinlessly, his entire life. Jesus Christ loved God the Father so much that he labored tirelessly and endlessly to the point of death so God the Father's will for us in all of our sin would be complete, that God the Father would save us and lavish love upon us even when we don't deserve it, but by grace give it to us so we would worship him. You see, at the moment of our salvation, Jesus did not just open up the doors of heaven and say, now you can come in. But by and through his blood, which he purchased and redeemed us with, even when you and I stumble on this faith journey to the celestial city, God's grace guarantees that the doors of heaven never close. He who saved you will keep you. Your sins are forgiven. You're victorious over the evil one. And I would like to close with this last promise and the last point, which is this. As you and I live in this world as Christians, stumbling but counting on grace by faith in the Savior, we're living for something that we cannot see but by faith know that we have. And that is the eternal kingdom, which is far more beautiful and far more glorious than we can ever imagine waiting for us. Verse 17, John says this. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away, along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The eternal kingdom is here. We cannot yet fully see it, but it is coming, and we know that it is certain and guaranteed for us because Christ not only died, but Christ rose. Therefore, we also know that he's coming for us again. I'll finish with these words. Jesus' words from John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God and also believe in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Therefore, I say to you, peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Hey, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. It's an honor to have you. It's one of our greatest joys to be hospitable and, and offer you this grace, and this is exactly what I'd like to do. If you, through this text, are starting to see the glory of God and the fickleness of this world that is fading and passing in God's everlasting presence, I'd like to offer you the Savior. I'm offering you a Savior who is full of grace and longs to forgive your sin. All you have to do is repent and believe upon the name, the only name, which saves. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I'll end with you. You have my heart, just like this church had John's. I just want to let you know it's worth it. Keep serving. Jesus is worth it. His promises are true. His word endures forever. Let him care for you as you run this race. The word of God endures forever. Christ is coming again. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. You long to be compassionate towards us. We know this because of the savor that you have given us who saves us one time and keeps us eternally forever. And so, God, I pray that your grace would encourage us to run this race with faithful obedience. Teach us to hide your word in our heart, Lord, and teach us to hate the world, the world meaning that which is opposed to your holy will and your holy kingdom. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We pray in your name. Amen.